You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest and a friend of Overcome, Dr. Amir Jazeri. So Dr. Jazeri is the Vice Chair for Clinical Research and the Director of the Gynecology Cancer Immunotherapy Program at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And regarded as one of the top global experts in this space, Dr. Jazeri has been involved in some groundbreaking work in the world of ovarian cancer that he's here to share with us today. So we have a lot to chat um, uh, with Dr. Jazeri about the uh, promising advances being made in the world of immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, among other things. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Jazeri. And if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we will get it addressed post the discussion. As I always say, Please share this, all these great insights he's about to share with us with anyone who may benefit from this information globally. So grab your coffee. I have mine. And let's get started um, with this episode of Connect Over Coffee. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Jazeri, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, lovely to be able to share um, exciting news about ovarian cancer with uh, Overcome and your audience. Thank you. So Dr. Cesare, as always, I have a lot of questions, but before we get into the details, um, I would like to start us off with the basics. So what is the role of immunotherapy in ovarian cancer at this time? Let's start with that. And why is it still challenging when it comes to ovarian cancer patients, this role of immunotherapy? And what are also what are the different types of immunotherapies that are available out there um, today? Uh, great questions. Um, so um, just to take a step backwards, immunotherapy is a newer way of treating cancer. Your audience may be aware of chemotherapy, radiation, and of course, surgery. Immunotherapy is a way of activating the body's own immune system to attack uh, and kill the cancer cells just like uh, our immune system might fight uh, infections, viral infections or bacterial infections such as strep throat. Now, the idea has been around for over a hundred years. Uh, however, we've learned to make it work uh, only in about the last 10 to 15 years. And uh, I would uh, agree that the benefit for ovarian cancer has not reached its full promise at this point. There has been uh, a number of immunotherapies that have shown significant benefit and have now become standard approved therapies for a number of different cancer types. Uh, however, uh, we are still working on uh, expanding that benefit of immunotherapy for patients with ovarian cancer. Now, as you mentioned, immunotherapy is not one thing. There are many different types of immunotherapy. I think most people, when they refer to immunotherapy, are probably referring to the class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Some of these uh, drugs are now advertised on TV because they have uh, 
gained approvals in so many different cancer types. But uh, we often describe these drugs as ways of generally activating the immune system by taking the breaks off of the immune cells. So our immune system is so potent that our um, body has evolved to put breaks. So as soon as the immune cells get activated against the target, soon thereafter, they also have mechanisms of shutting themselves down so that that activation doesn't extend into normal tissues or normal cells and cause collateral damage. Unfortunately, cancer cells take advantage of these shutdown mechanisms. And so immune checkpoint inhibitors are drugs that then take these breaks off of the, the immune cells to allow them to better recognize, uh, attack, and hopefully kill the cancer cells. So that's one common type of uh, immunotherapy. Some of the drugs in this arena are uh, pembrolizumab, uh, atezolizumab, um, nivolumab. So these are, these are drugs uh, that are examples of immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, a different type of immunotherapy is uh, called adoptive cell therapy. It's called adoptive cell therapy because in this type of immunotherapy, the immune cells are actually extracted from the patient's body. They can be expanded in the lab to many fold. At times, they can be genetically altered to make them specifically recognize a target on the cancer cells. And then they are placed back into the body. They're often infused back into the body uh, to um, provide benefit. Uh, and so that's another large class of uh, immunotherapies um, uh, or sometimes they're referred to as T-cell therapies. So um, Dr. Jazari, of these uh, kinds of immunotherapies, I know that we have not made a lot of progress in ovarian cancer, but are both these types of immunotherapies being tested on ovarian patients or do they benefit one from one versus the other? Absolutely. So, and, you know, I think um, the benefit has definitely been seen with some immune checkpoint inhibitor trials. There are trials that have shown about 10 or 15% of patients with ovarian cancer may benefit from single drug immune checkpoint inhibitors. Other studies have suggested that if we take two different immune uh, checkpoint inhibitors, for example, one that uh, attacks a, a checkpoint called PD-1 and another that attacks a checkpoint called CTLA-4, the combination may in fact expand that benefit to about 30% of patients. Um, other studies have shown that combining these checkpoint inhibitors with other drugs can also expand the benefit. So I would say that we're really on the cusp of figuring out how to expand that benefit, but this remains really um, an active area of research, both the immune checkpoint and immune checkpoint combination area of immunotherapy, as well as adoptive cell therapy or T-cell therapies uh, being used either unmodified or genetically modified. So um, I would say the jury's definitely not out uh, and that there's still a lot of hope and promise. We just have to figure out how to expand the benefit to the maximum number of patients. 
Wonderful. So um, about the uh, latest advances happening in the field uh, when it comes to immunotherapy and ovarian cancer, and we are going to get into details as we go along with the discussion, but if you had to you know, summarize what are the some of the uh, latest advances, what would you say, what should our overcomers know about that? Yeah, so I think um, maybe two areas that are worth highlighting. Um, you know, there was a study that came out in the fall of 2020 from Roswell Park that raised a lot of interest. This was one of those studies that are a combination of immune checkpoint inhibitors and other drugs, expanding benefit. Uh, in this study, uh, the drug pembrolizumab was combined with other drugs that are already being used in ovarian cancer. One of them was bevacizumab, which is an anti-angiogenic drug. It attacks a growth factor that helps cancer cells recruit new blood vessels. And an oral type of chemotherapy called cyclophosphamide or cytoxan, which um, in oral daily form has very little side effects. The combination of these three drugs produced uh, really unprecedented response rates in patients with platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. So that was a very exciting uh, study. We're looking forward to uh, confirmatory studies so that this combination can be listed under NCCN guidelines and or receive uh, FDA uh, approval. So that's, I think, um, one example of um, how um, these combinations may, may really expand the benefit. Um, the, the second study we just recently presented at the Society for Gynecologic Oncology meeting this March uh, in, in Arizona, and this was born out of one of our clinical trials that's focused on trying to understand how to expand benefit of immunotherapy for a subtype of ovarian cancer called clear cell carcinoma. Patients with ovarian clear cell carcinoma have a slightly worse prognosis compared to the general population of ovarian cancer. And this is felt to be in part due to the fact that clear cell ovarian cancers tend to behave in a more chemo-resistant manner. And so it's even that much more important to identify useful treatments. And our study, which is preliminary results from our clinical trial, identified a potential biomarker that might correlate with uh, extended survival after treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors in patients with ovarian clear cell cancer. Um, and the name of the gene is um, uh, called PPP2R1A. Um, I took the liberty of making a little signal uh, for, for your audience, but... Um, the name of this gene is not as important as the fact that we're seeing that it correlates. And correlation, of course, is not always causation, but we, we have, um, there's other published studies that point to potential functional relationship between this gene, this pathway, and um, response, better responses to immunotherapy. We're excited about this finding because Mutations in this gene are rare, but if we can use a drug to achieve the same, the same effect as those patients who, who have tumors with mutations, then we, can, we hope to expand that benefit 
to the broader population of patients who may not have a mutation in this gene, but um, may, may derive benefit from combining immune checkpoint inhibitors with a pharmacological inhibitor that results in the same biological changes as the mutation. So that's another area of excitement um, that we just reported on. Wonderful. And I'm going to delve a little deeper on the PPP uh, as we go as we go along. But um, sure. thank you for thank you for the um, overview. So from uh, what I understand and the general consensus from what I hear from all the other physicians is that ovarian cancer patients uh, should take immunotherapy only as a part of clinical trials and not as a standard of care. So what are your thoughts on this and which type of patients um, benefit the most from immunotherapy and what are the challenges of this treatment, side effects, et cetera, that our overcomers should be aware of? Yeah, I think in general, I would agree with that comment, especially because there are no FDA approved mm -hmm. immunotherapies specifically for ovarian cancer. That's a general statement. There may be small subsets of patients with ovarian cancer that may have molecular alterations in their tumor that may um, allow them to receive FDA approved immune checkpoint inhibitors. For example, a small portion of patients with endometrioid or clear cell ovarian cancer may have a molecular subtype that's called MSI high. And this molecular subtype among all cancers qualifies for treatment with pembrolizumab. And so that may be um, a quote standard uh, treatment with immunotherapy for a small subset of patients with ovarian cancer. But in general, because there's no FDA approved immunotherapy, access is largely through investigational um, um, route or clinical trials. Um, and as I mentioned, the focus of many of these clinical trials is to not use these immune checkpoint inhibitors by themselves, but rather identify useful combinations that can expand that benefit. The one caveat is the study that I mentioned uh, from uh, Roswell Park that was published in JAMA Oncology in 2020. That study um, was a phase two trial, and those results, um, I think, provide some justification for using the combination of pembrolizumab, bevacizumab, and oral cytoxan in patients with recurrent uh, chemoresistant ovarian cancer. But I would say it's um, hit or miss whether, uh, you know, as providers, we can get that approved for, for patients um, who might benefit for that because technically it's not FDA approved and it's not listed in NCCN guidelines as of yet. So you raised a very important point here where, you know, you talked about this, this small subset of patients that may actually benefit from immunotherapy aside from being on a clinical trial. However, it is at the discretion of the healthcare team and the healthcare provider. So, so 
patients who are not seen at large centers, right, like Anderson or Dana-Farber, um, you know, majority of these ovarian cancer patients are being seen at community hospitals, as we understand. So do you think the doctors or the physicians or the healthcare teams that are treating these patients are aware of this fact that they could potentially use their judgment in patients that could benefit outside of a clinical trial? Or what is, what is your general opinion and where should, it almost seems like there should be a second opinion somewhere coming in in this picture where the patients need to reach out to you know, experts like you when they're trying to determine the next path. So what is your guidance on this? Uh, yeah, I think, I think you raise a very important question uh, or I would say questions. I think it's hard um, because of variability. I, I think there are probably some providers out there in the community who are very aware of, uh, you know, different molecular classifications that may result in an FDA-approved immunotherapy treatment for a patient with ovarian cancer, and and there may be others where you know th that sort of awareness may not may not have trickled through. I think one thing that the patients can do to advocate for their, for their care is, first of all, to make sure that they have uh, molecular studies that are ordered on their tumors. These molecular studies can be done at large academic centers in-house, but there are also commercial companies uh, that, that provide this service to any, uh, to any cancer center, any, uh, any provider. So, by having that, those results on their tumor, some of these tests, uh, commercial uh, tests uh, are called, uh, for example, foundation one or Keras testing. Um, and they provide information such as microsatellite instability or MSI status of the tumor. They provide information such as tumor mutational burden, which is another molecular um, uh, so, sort of uh, classification that can result in availability of FDA-approved immune checkpoint inhibitors. So, so I think that's one way where patients can sort of uh, advocate and make sure that um, you know, uh, as much information as possible is available about their tumor. Um, I think second opinions are always a, a great idea. I think, um, and, and you know, really uh, any good, uh, physician, any good provider should encourage second opinions, especially for patients who may have exhausted uh, the obvious or standard treatment modalities. I think, um, you know, uh, that's, that's always, uh, and even if the second opinion completely agrees with the first opinion, then that provides a further um, reassurance and confidence that, you know, uh, everything, um, is going the right way and uh, best possible treatment options are being considered. Wonderful, and thank you for sharing your candid response to this because I believe that knowledge is power. And as you said, I mean, patients need to know what their treatment options are, and you know, we need to be able to provide that information and so to them so that they can make informed choices. So thank you for this. So uh, talking about, and you you touched upon this, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, right? Uh, so. What I have read is that it offers some patients with some dramatic, you know, disease, I mean, durable 
disease regression, but response rates in uh, recurrent ovarian cancer have so far remained low. And here comes your PPP2R1A <laughs> hotspot mutation that you talked about at the recent, um, presented on the recent SGO meeting. So tell, tell us about this in a little more detail in the sense that what should our overcomers know about this indicator that you presented and how does it impact their disease state and what questions should they be asking of their healthcare team going forward? Sure. So um, I think, first of all, I want to mention that this is very new and emerging information. So this isn't something that, you know, is well-defined and quite actionable yet. Um, I, we think there's uh, excitement around it because this idea of having a biomarker to identify those patients that are likely to benefit from immunotherapy, um, that's been the holy grail, right? So we don't want patients who are not going to benefit to go on trials or otherwise receive these drugs that can have potentially serious side effects. So that's sort of where the excitement comes from. But I would stress that this is still preliminary and emerging data. Uh, first of all, I can mention to your audience that these mutations are most relevant to ovarian clear cell cancer. As a comparison, the rates of PPP2R1A mutations in ovarian clear cell cancer is about 10 or 15% compared to the more common high-grade serous histology where these mutations are very rare, maybe 1% or less of patients may carry them. So that's why the focus of our ongoing clinical trial is uh, to focus on, uh, initially the focus was on all ovarian cancers. This trial has evolved over time. Then there were signals that, you know, some patients with clear cell ovarian cancer derive more benefits. So we limited eligibility in our ongoing trial to just clear cell ovarian cancer. Now with this molecular information, so Dr. Jazari, this too. only open to patients with clear cell ovarian cancer who have this mutation. And I would just sort of put in a plug that this trial is open. So if there are any patients in your audience who happen to have clear cell ovarian cancer and have, a mole have done molecular testing on their tumor and they're aware that this is one of their mutations, uh, we'd be happy to sort of uh, um, evaluate them for participation in our trial. So where should they look? Uh, on, your, on the Anderson website or where or the clinical gov? Yes, and I can, I can provide you the um, clinicaltrials.gov entry for the clinical trial. And we also have a wonderful resource. Uh, we have a trial navigator, Liliana, who's available. You don't have to be an MD Anderson patient. You can email her uh, and uh, you know, have some preliminary discussions. I will say that it's very difficult to determine whether or not somebody would be eligible with, for a trial without actually directly visiting uh, in Houston, uh, reviewing all of their um, medical records, imaging, doing an exam, doing laboratory evaluation. So I, I will put that out there that, uh, you know, um, unfortunate, even though we, we do offer some telehealth services um, to those states that allow it, 
clinical trial participation is something that actually requires an in, in-person visit. But um, I'm happy to uh, provide Overcome with some contacts in case uh, any member of your audience might be interested in learning more about this. Yeah, that would be wonderful. And also, I was just curious, uh, when uh, you were talking about the clear cell population, what percentage of the overall ovarian cancer uh, population would you think is clear cell? About 10%. About 10%. Okay. And, and that's been the difficulty of learning more about this signal because uh, mm -hmm. clear cells are 10% of all ovarian cancer patients. And this mutation is present in only 10% of clear cells. So we're talking about a needle in the haystack. 1% of ovarian cancer patients may have this mutation. Uh, the other interesting observation is that in patients on the trial that have this mutation, initially, it looks like the cancer is growing. And it's only later on for patients that are continued where we see the decline in the size of the tumor, prolonged stabilization and responses. And I think that may be another reason uh, and sort of another learning uh, uh, point from, uh, for me at least in, in observing uh, you know, the relationship between these mutations and better outcomes that um, the typical clinical trial, when there is the first evidence of cancer growing on a CT scan, for example, that's considered progression and patients are taken off that trial. Um, then, you know, there's a discussion of alternative treatment uh, planning. Uh, with immunotherapy, there is this recognition that there's a concept of pseudo-progression or false progression in some patients, at least. Um, and, you know, the rates are estimated at very low, maybe less than 5% uh, of patients. But what we're seeing is because our clinical trial allowed continuing patients on immunotherapy, if it was agreed by the patient and the provider that that still was the best course of action, we started to see this delayed benefit. And so that's kind of another thing uh, to be aware of that these were not dramatic responses that happened right off the bat, but rather delayed responses, often after initial stable disease or evidence of progression. Thank you. And I know that, you know, this has not been read out completely yet. As you said, it's still in uh, progress. But in terms of the overall, you know, overall survival and the progression-free survival, what are some of the initial statistics that you're seeing with this particular mutation and treatment? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, in our abstract uh, at SGO, we presented our data on 28 patients, 28 clear cell ovarian cancer patients. Of the 28, 21 of them did not have this mutation and okay. seven patients had, had the mutation. And overall median, average overall survival in the population who did not have the mutation was about six and a half months versus a median that was not reached in the group uh, that, um, that had the mutation. We had some patients that were uh, living with disease, but even five years after initial exposure to immunotherapy. So that's sort of, um, you know, 
why we consider this preliminary uh, results because the numbers are small, but uh, definitely the pattern is intriguing. And that's why we're trying to expand the numbers, specifically those patients that have the mutation, so we can draw more robust conclusions. So just to flesh it down a little bit more. So what you're saying, I understand it's a small subset of patients, but was it six months versus five years? Is that correct? Well, the median was not reached, meaning patients with the mutation, many of them were still alive. Right. We couldn't estimate an overall survival in that in that group. But the gap is significant. Yes, it is. Okay, wonderful. That's wonderful. So we 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 look forward to the readouts from this trial. I mean, by the way, I mean, all these names need to change, Dr. Giseri, all the all the drug names and the trial names. I mean, come you, you should all come up with some simple names that we can all pronounce, right? I know. And we, we try to avoid using uh commercial names, sure. you, you know, but um Yes, the, especially the generic names are, are very difficult. Right. Um, that's why I made this sign. So this, this one Thank is- you, we appreciate that, yes. So uh, you are doing some exciting work and, and just you know speaking of excitement, this brings me to the next point uh, about the uh, drug factory implants, right? So you are involved in this study that by Rice University bioengineers that have shown that they can actually eliminate advanced stage ovarian cancer in mice in as little as six days with a treatment that could be ready for uh, human trials later this year. So this is beyond exciting. And, you know, so tell us a little more about this initiative in detail, where is your involvement and how do you see this um, see this playing out? Sure. I, I have the privilege of being involved in this uh, research that's led by Omid Beza um, at, at uh, Rice University. Um, as you mentioned, um, there was a recent publication in Science Advances that has generated a lot of excitement. Um, and the technology is uh, simply that we can program cells, human, human cells, to make uh, whatever protein of interest um, for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, any time that um, another human cell is placed into our body, our immune system will immediately start uh, to try to reject it, right? So that's why organ transplants require very close matching of individuals based on uh, immune and cell surface markers so that that rejection doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that these uh, investigators uh, have cleverly gotten around this is to encapsulate these little cell factories in uh, nanoparticles that protect them from the immune system, at least for some time. Um, The other advantage of this approach is that sometimes prolonged exposure to potent immunotherapy drugs can produce side effects. And so in this way, this treatment is self-limited because after a few weeks, um, these cells are sort of walled off by by the immune system um, and um, the, the, the cells that are programmed to make the product of interest die off. So it's not a sort of a type of um, 
cell therapy where the cells persist for very long time in, in the body. And so with the preliminary preclinical data, of course, the next step is to um, do all the sort of uh, specialized tests that FDA requires to get into a first in human type of clinical trial. And that's sort of where um, my um, uh, small contribution to this effort is um, I serve uh, on the scientific and clinical advisory board for the company that's developing this. And we are, as you mentioned, hoping uh, to ha have a trial open later this year um, uh, for um, testing this in, in patients with ovarian cancer. So for, for human patients, when it comes to the trials, I mean, um, have you all designed the trial already? Or can you tell us a little more about what are the uh, pre-specifications of the trial? What should our overcomers know? Who is the target and how can they enroll? Yeah, I think all of that is ongoing now. We, uh, we just convened a clinical advisory board. And so, uh, you know, there's really not much solid information that I have to share other than, um, you know, it's definitely being worked on. I think like many, um, many initial trials, uh, we're gonna be targeting um, uh, probably patients with platinum resistant ovarian cancer um, because that's where the at need uh, population is. And, and of course, you know, we don't want to um, avoid proven therapies for patients in favor of, uh, of an unknown, no matter how promising this, this treatment might be. So, so you know, there's, um, that's probably as much as I, I can offer at this point, but uh, definitely um, stay tuned as, uh, as um, further development happens. I think, um, you know, there'll be information shared on clinicaltrials.gov and, um, and all that. Thank you. And so meanwhile, we will keep hoping that uh, platinum resistant patients, when they get on this trial, their cancer is eradicated in six days. <laughs> so that's what the that's what the press release says. So we are going to keep hoping on that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, the caveats are humans are not mice. But, yes. but yeah, I think I think anytime we see a signal for uh, efficacy, in animals that just adds excitement and confidence. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, the proof is in the pudding. So we definitely have to wait for the clinical trial. Yeah, and we will wait patiently and hopefully because this is super exciting if this happens, especially for the platinum resistant population because, and but one thing I have to say is, you know, for the last past few months or perhaps a year or so, there's so much coming out for platinum resistant patients, which was not there before. So it is definitely lots of progress that we are thankful for, for these categories of patients. I'm really glad you mentioned that because that, that's one of the first things, you know, when I see new patients, uh, especially patients with recurrent disease that have had had previous treatments, I, you know, I try to highlight the importance of so much research that's ongoing, uh, studies that are showing promise and hopefully will be tomorrow's approved therapies. And so um, I, I completely agree and echo uh, sort of the hope that's there now, um, much more so than previous decades uh, of ovarian cancer treatment. And so 
um, it's really an exciting time, um, uh, you know, to to be able to offer patients, um, you know, things that are uh, currently investigational, but also may become approved therapies in the near future. Wonderful. So, um, Dr. Giuseppe, immunotherapy is a complex field when it comes to ovarian cancer, and we know that we are in early stages, and we talked about a lot about immunotherapy and its advances. So, but what hope do you see in the horizon in terms of immunotherapy and ovarian cancer becoming a standard of care, but because we talked about how it is still mostly in the realm of clinical trials right now. So, but in the next five to 10 years, how do you see this playing out immunotherapy and ovarian cancer that you would like to share with our overcomers? Yeah, I think, um, you know, none of us have a crystal ball. However, I think some, some of the areas that I see at least as exciting are um, earlier use of immunotherapies. You know, there is some evidence that uh, there might be more, more uh, improvement. Um, when immunotherapy is introduced prior to multiple lines of therapy. And, and in this regard, um, our group is um, becoming interested in the concept of minimal residual disease and ovarian cancer. Um, maybe that's a topic for, for a separate discussion, but, but uh, of course, the problem with ovarian cancer, especially patients with advanced stage ovarian cancer, is that the upfront surgery and chemotherapy works pretty well. Uh, unfortunately, the, the problem is that many patients' cancer comes back. And so what if we can detect the earliest persistence or uh, presence of minimal residual disease and then direct our clinical trials, investigational trials, immunotherapy combinations at that time point? Um, can we make a meaningful uh, difference? And, you know, we're, we're doing some sort of um, pioneering work in that area. Uh, and, and I think um, that's, that's an area of promise uh, sort of in the future. And of course, trying to combine uh, immunotherapy with chemo has, has been tried. The immune, immune checkpoint inhibitors added to chemo alone have not, um, have not shown the desired uh, improvement beyond chemo alone. However, um, I think there are many different types of immunotherapy um, that are, are being tried and, and might, might show promise in that, in that setting. Um, you know, uh, let's not forget about PARP inhibitors that have been approved over the last five years. And, and sort of, uh, especially for patients with the HRD molecular subtype of ovarian cancer is now ex expanding patients' disease-free survival uh, significantly. So that's been a, that's been a great area um, just happened over the last uh, few years. Um, so I, again, I'm, I'm, I remain uh, very optimistic. Uh, I think there's a lot going on and even a fraction, if a fraction of what's going on now provides a significant benefit, then I, I still see a much brighter future for patients that are being diagnosed today with, with ovarian cancer. Wonderful. So I had a couple of questions while, you know, pop in my head while you were talking. So 
For um, ovarian cancer patients, when it comes to immunotherapy, uh, you talked about the you know upfront moving it ahead in the schedule of treatment, which is fabulous. So even from the stage perspective, do you see like all you know? Is it only? Do you think it is applicable or probably more? Um, I don't know, more effective for patients who are in the advanced stage, but or could immunotherapy be given at every stage in ovarian cancer early, later? Yeah. What's your opinion on that? Um, I, I think it, it will come down to risk benefits. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we didn't really talk about it today, but immunotherapy, even though it seems like a natural way of stimulating the body's own immune system to attack the cancer, uh, which is a very holistic approach. They can have significant side effects, potentially life-threatening side effects. And so, uh, so obviously, uh, patients with stage one or two ovarian cancer, even though those stages occur less frequently, those patients have a high likelihood of cure. So you have to be judicious about, you know, what is, what is the risk benefit for that patient who might have 60, 70, 80% chance of cure to add in something that may be, have limited benefit, but have potentially serious side effects. So I think that's where, um, or that's why the uh, patients with advanced stage disease are the primary target for combinatorial and other types of immunotherapy, just because um, the need is much greater there. And unfortunately, the cure rates are much lower. And um, where does vaccine therapy come in this context? Yeah, I think vaccine therapy is a subtype of immune therapy. Again, trying to educate the immune cells to better recognize, attack and kill the cancer cells. Um, you know, uh, tons of effort is, is going into that. Uh, and of course, vaccines were tried even before immune checkpoint inhibitors, but now we're in a different era. I think our understanding of the immune system and obstacles to anti-cancer immunity has grown. And so I think there's been kind of a renaissance and resurgence of interest in vaccine therapies maybe not in and of themselves, but in combination with other types of immunotherapy or vaccines that target mutations in the tumor specifically. Um, those mutations in the tumor, um, our, our body's immune system is used to self and not reacting to self. The mutations in the tumor can make the tumor less like self and can be potentially um, be leveraged or taken advantage of so that um, the immune system can selectively recognize cancer cells and destroy them. So that's one, one type of at least vaccine approach um, to, to try to um, eradicate tumors based on mutations that they have where the normal cells don't. And so all these vaccine therapies, is it more of uh, maintenance in the sense that, you know, once the patient is done with her treatment, she goes on to the vaccine therapy or where is the, what is the timeline? Where? Yeah, many have been tried in the maintenance setting to extend, uh, extend again, um, uh, just like PARP inhibitors are one tool mm -hmm. to extend disease-free survival. 
some of the vaccine therapies um, uh, have been uh, tested and uh, shown to have some benefit in the maintenance setting. Um, again, you know, I don't know that there's anything that I would uh, currently uh, routinely recommend to all patients, um, um, uh, especially sort of uh, with a with a benefit for from PARP inhibitors for at least patients that are HRD positive. Uh, but I think that's also an area that's being actively explored with other trials um, ongoing. Okay. And uh, my last question, because th this topic is so fascinating, I'm just coming up with more questions. So yeah. when, when they're in, in the maintenance setting, uh, have any patients done like being on PARP and the vaccine therapy together? Is that possible? Is that a combination or not, or why not? You know, uh, I don't know um, off the top of my head whether vaccine plus PARPs have been tried. Immunotherapy plus PARPs have definitely been tried. Um, you know, um, there's, there's, a, there's a trial called Athena whose results yeah. I think are anticipated to come out uh, sometime soon, maybe as soon as ASCO. Uh, so we all look forward to seeing uh, whether um, some combination of immunotherapy and PARPs may be, may be useful in that, in that um, setting. Uh, but there's, there's definitely uh, interest in terms of combining PARP inhibitors and immunotherapies. Now, vaccines specifically, again, I'm not sure about that. But um, that's definitely an area of investigation. Even PARP and immunotherapy together, I mean, if it if it's a hit, then I, I am assuming that is going to additionally benefit a lot more patients than not. So yeah, and again, that, I think there are randomized trials that are trying to answer that question, mm -hmm. and it remains to be seen whether uh, you know sometimes things that kind of make sense don't always pan out. Uh, yeah, I think combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy, you know, here you have two different ways of attacking the cancer and, uh, you know, uh, the, everybody was hoping that there would be, uh, and it, what's interesting is there is benefit in other cancer types. So uh, we just recently had approval of chemotherapy plus Pembro for patients with advanced cervical cancer, uh, because that randomized trial did show uh, benefit over uh, the group that got just the standard of care chemotherapy, um, but why not in ovarian cancer? And I think that's that's uh, sort of a, a you know we we've circled back to the to the to how we started this conversation, which is why isn't immunotherapy working better in ovarian cancer? And how can we, in addition to trying new combinations, how can we try smarter combinations and Again, um, you know, what we're interested in is those single or few microscopic cancer cells that are left behind after frontline treatment. You know, what is special about those cells that didn't get destroyed with frontline treatment? But also, what is special about their microenvironment? What is special about their immune environment? And how can we learn, uh, you know, if we can have that information that currently is inaccessible, then maybe we can come up with immunotherapy combinations that work better specifically in ovarian cancer. 
Fascinating conversation, Dr. Giseri. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. So we, I've asked you a lot of questions. So what have I not asked you? What have I missed that you would like to share? Um, you know, I think um, I think we covered a good breadth of uh, topic. Um, of course, if questions come up or sort of additional um, um, you know, changes or initiatives uh, roll out. I think there are going to be some additional initiatives, uh, hopefully, that will be publicly announced soon. Uh, I, I would love to have the opportunity to revisit with you and, and your audience, and then we can uh, talk about some of those other things, uh, you know, sort of specifically um, targeting minimal residual disease in ovarian cancer. Thank you. And are there any trials in your lab other than the PPP one that we talked about that you would like to share with our audience? Uh, yes. Um, you know, again, we have lots of clinical trials, uh, not just me, but uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, that are um, sort of interested in clinical research targeting ovarian cancer. Um, you know, I, I won't speak to any specific trial, I will just mention that, um, especially for patients who develop platinum resistant disease, I think that's the right time to consider clinical trials, just because standard chemotherapy options uh, provide benefit only to a minority of patients with, with, uh, with uh, sort of that, um, that, you know, chemo, that have chemo resistant disease, but also uh, sometimes when I talk to patients, I find that there's this kind of a misperception that, oh, clinical trials have to be the last co course of action. Like if you've exhausted everything else, that's the time to consider clinical trials. And unfortunately, nothing could be farther from the truth. I think uh, most clinical trials are written with safety in mind, which means they're written with about 50 inclusion and exclusion criteria to make sure that because the investigational product is an unknown, we want to first and foremost do no harm. So there are very stringent eligibility criteria and you know, patients over time, especially if they undergo multiple lines of therapy may develop a decrease in functional status or laboratory abnormalities that may then prevent them from, from being eligible for trials. And then that opportunity is lost. So I would just encourage patients, uh, especially if you know, platinum drugs are no longer providing benefit, that's the time to really say, you know, wait a second, maybe, maybe I need to think about something sort of promising uh, and investigational rather than um, other uh, further lines of therapy uh, that are standard. And it's a, it's a really important message. Thank you for sharing that. And I will also add to this that, you know, as much as, and I, I uh, referred to this in my earlier, one of the earlier comments that I made that in certain situations, the patients are not talked to about clinical trial options, right? I mean, again, going back to some of the other, you know, less volume hospitals or et cetera, it's not very often that they're, we have talked to patients directly who have told us that I, 
I don't know about any clinical trials or I have never been talked about when it comes to clinical trials. So it is also on the providers uh, of all these hospitals and institutions to then, you know, introduce the patients to what is available, even if it's not at their own center, you know, I mean, just to make that information available to empower the patients so that they can then make that decision whether, you know, driving all the way or flying even to Anderson or other big centers is a possibility. Um, sometimes the patients are willing, but they just don't get the information, you know, so it's, it's both ways. So it has to, the responsibility lies on us and, you know, the patients and the providers, everyone to make this work. You know, I think that's an area where advocacy organizations such as Overcome can play mm -hmm. such a huge role because it's daunting for patients to go to clinicaltrials.gov and try to research, mm. you know, what, which trial should I do? You know, it's so I find that there's an area of need to make that information more accessible to patients. And, and again, uh, you know, we've, um, we, We've gone to a model where we have a trial navigator so that uh, it doesn't have to be the PI of the trial that you have to get a hold of to get your information. Uh, you know, we have uh, somebody who can, who can have some preliminary discussions uh, with patients. And, uh, and again, that you don't have to be an MD Anderson patient to, to reach out. Uh, so we're, we're happy to make that resource available. That's wonderful to know because uh, you know, not every patient, as you said, not every family is as, you know, technology efficient that they can go to navigate clinicaltrials.gov because it is very complicated. I've been there and it takes a while to figure out everything. So having a live person, like you said, just to take the phone calls and to speak to the patients or the family members makes all the difference. So thank you for mentioning that. So great conversation, Dr. Jazeri. Just in uh, closing, um, this is my last question. It's nothing to do with uh, clinical or uh, research um, information. So what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience? I, I just reiterate that, you know, there's so much um, so much neat research that's happening that I can't help but be very optimistic. Um, and uh, I want your audience to know that we're, we're all working super hard. None of us are happy with the current state of affairs uh, for care of ovarian cancer and that we are working tirelessly to make the future brighter and, and to just hang in there. The future Already in the last five years, there have been multiple new approvals uh, for ovarian and other gynecologic cancers. And you know, I I also like to just uh, briefly mention the example of endometrial cancer. Not long ago, endometrial cancer, like ovarian cancer, was a, a disease where immune checkpoint inhibitors had a 10 or 14 percent response rate. Uh, but then, you know, newer information. Uh, subtype uh, classification, addition of other drugs in combination has now increased that benefit to about 40% of ovarian uh, or endometrial cancer patients derived benefit from some sort of immunotherapy. And so that, that's a great example that's just happened in the last uh, five or six years of a cancer that seemingly immunotherapy didn't work. Uh, to, to going um, to a cancer where immunotherapy is becoming early and earlier line of treatment. So 
that uh, that uh, should hopefully, um, you know, we should be able to emulate that model in ovarian cancer. That's wonderful to know. And we, I, on our end, we would like to say thank you to all of you for doing all your hard work. And we know that you don't stop and you continue your research so that more and more ovarian cancer patients or just gynecologic cancer patients may benefit from all the new advances coming our way. So we are thankful to all of you, the whole medical community for all the great work that you do. So thank you, Dr. Jazeri. This was a fascinating conversation. I know we, I could go on for the next five hours but like you said, we will invite you back to talk about the latest findings which are about to happen in the next uh, few weeks or months. And so, um, you know, just keep us updated. We would love to learn as we go. And overcomers, hope this was very beneficial for you. It was fantastic information that Dr. Jazeri just shared with us. So please, please share this video far and wide with anyone who may benefit globally from all this information that he just shared with us. And uh, we will be back with the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep talking about ovarian cancer because you know, together we can overcome. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.